Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. I love the uh, I love the selection that the team uh, chose, Socrates, with your leadership. Thank you for choosing uh, the songs that we sang because they really articulate, at least for me, uh, what it looks like in uh, the life of Chris Ogden when faith is a struggle. When I'm having to say things like, "God, I will make room for you," because. I maybe don't have it. I, don't, I can't find it in my schedule or in my time. When I say things like, God, we believe for it. You've said it. It's done. This is faith. Faith is not a jumping from cloud to cloud and wearing plastic smiles. It's fighting, striving, struggling toward God to believe that his promises are good, that his way is better like we sang a moment ago. And so we gather together today in faith. And the source of our faith is first and foremost God in the person of Jesus coming to save and redeem us. And we know the story of Jesus because of the word of God. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking some Bible passages that are a little bit challenging, if I can be perfectly honest. A little bit fly in the face of the things that we're hearing and seeing in the world today. And yet I don't know anything else to do but to tell you what I see the Word of God teaching us. And so we're going to enter into what we're calling an awkward conversation. Let me once more put this disclaimer out. If you've got young children and you missed my earliest dis- earlier disclaimer uh, and you want to check them into kids' program, we encourage you to do that. You might be able to tell I'm a dad of young children and so I want to be really careful um, in, in the sensitive subject matter we're going over today to not uh, put you as a parent in an compromising situation. So uh, what I did this week to kind of get some material for my message is I asked my friends, I said, tell me some of the awkward conversations that you've had. How many of you have ever had an awkward conversation in your life? How many of you had 17 this week? Okay. It happens, right? My wife would tell you that I find myself in awkward situations all the time. I'm not sure why I am the common denominator, so I'm just going to own that. Sometimes things get a little awkward. So I'm going to share. I I chose four. They shared many. I'm going to to share with you four of the things that this group of friends shared with me. And after each one that I say, you're going to say back to me, awkward. Can we practice that? Okay. Okay. This will just help with the the crowd participation. So one of them uh, was newly married and recalled having to mediate a fight between their mother and their mother-in-law. Uh, One was told by a boyfriend, you should dress more like my sister. One one shared, yeah, we're not going to get into that. One shared about having been copied in a group text where the person accidentally included her and spoke poorly of her to their friends. Okay. And I saved this one for last. One shared that while she was pregnant, a little boy came up to her and said, you're fat like my mom. The mom was standing right there and was very much not pregnant. And so, so these are some of the t- things that just happen, right? It's just a result of the fall. We just find ourselves. But then other times, 
just being real, other times we have to enter into an awkward conversation. It's not the kind that just sneaks up on us. It's not the kind that's just socially awkward. It's the kind that we have to initiate because it is necessary to do. Things like having to tell a student on a missions trip that they needed to put on deodorant. That may or may not be a true life story and very much is. When we were younger, some of us can recall, and some of you in the room are still in this season of life where you've got to have the DTR, the define the relationship conversation, and sometimes that's a, hey, this isn't going anywhere. It's awkward, right? Uh, some of you have had to let go of somebody, and it's because of their job performance, and so you've got to enter into an awkward conversation, and I've found sometimes I say, hey, this is going to be a little awkward, but here's what needs to be said, okay? And just kind of take the air out of it. So what I'm doing right now is saying, this is going to be a little awkward. But we're going to dive right into it. And what we're going to do is we're going to open Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We've been kind of in a series through the letter of 1 Corinthians. We're getting back into it today. And we're going to listen in on an awkward conversation that Paul is having with the church of Corinth. And the reason being that one of the members of this church has really kind of gone off the rails and nobody is willing to talk about it. But of course, the Apostle Paul is always willing to enter awkward space and awkward situations. You know, I think our tendency sometimes as we think about the people in the Bible, right? So like David or Abraham or Esther or whoever it might be, we can have this subtle tendency to think those are spiritual people. Those are people we look to for examples of faith or kindness or courage. And sometimes we neglect the fact that these were also some of the most brilliant men and women who ever walked the planet that we call home. People like I shared with you a few weeks back, Jochebed, Moses' mother, who ingeniously found a way to save her child's life in the midst of a genocide and get paid to raise him. It's brilliant. There was another man, Solomon, who was a king and was considered the wisest man who had ever lived. Jesus himself was not only a great teacher, not only God incarnate come to save the world, Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And so when we look at the Apostle Paul and we listen in on his conversation with the Corinthians, I want you to remember that we're listening in on the words of a man who is not crazy, who is not merely religious, He's a brilliant thinker. The Apostle Paul studied the law and ended up becoming a teacher of the law. He spoke multiple languages. Paul's writings have been the single greatest influence on the development of Western civilization for going on 2,000 years. This is not somebody that we should take lightly. And so with that, we're going to look at two assertions that Paul's going to make in 1 Corinthians 5. And each of them will go like this. There will be a premise... And there will be a conclusion. Each premise and conclusion will be linked to the other. And it's going to put together an argument that Paul is making about what the church needs to do in the moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read the first two verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Instead, let him who has done this be removed from among you. The first premise we're going to see Paul make is this. Sex is a moral act. 
I want you to know that every major world religion and philosophy in all of history has agreed on this point. You could look at the Old Testament law and prophets of Judaism. You could look at the Eastern religions like Hinduism, Confucianism, Buddhism, uh, Greek philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, they all taught on the morality of sexuality. Even Muhammad, the founder of Islam, understood sex to be a moral act. In other words, any time that sex occurs, there is something moral that is happening for better or for worse. And you may find it interesting that science also demonstrates the fact that sex is a moral act. Because what happens during sex is that something called oxytocin is released from the brain into the body and it creates a bonding between the individuals who are participating in the sexual act. This bonding increases things like trust, loyalty, confidence. Now that doesn't happen when you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or wear the color blue. There's something about sex that that differentiates it from all other acts that human beings participate in and make it moral. And, And then lastly, our own intuition points out this reality. You will not find anyone, I believe, on planet Earth who would legitimately try to make the argument that sex is amoral, without morals. And all you have to do is point to the horrific things that can happen when sexuality runs amok. Things like molestation, rape, incest, sexual abuse, and on and on and on. And so it is very clear that sex is a moral act. And Paul says that the the variation or the kind that's happening in this Corinthian church He says, very interestingly, it's something that's not even tolerated in the unbelieving culture at large. And Corinth was a terrible place to live. Paul says, church, what are you doing? This isn't even something your culture is accepting of in this particular instance. And he rebukes them in verse 2 for their arrogance. Now, he doesn't really get into why he's referring to them as arrogant, but my understanding, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you remember a few, several weeks ago now, we unpacked the reason that the, the Corinthian church had reached out to Paul. They were trying to figure out who was the greatest apostle so that they could hitch their wagon to that person and then kind of rise above their peers because they followed the right leader. And Paul goes, time out. You're arguing about who's the greatest among you and you've got this going on? He says, you, you shouldn't be arrogant, church. You should be humbled. You should be repentant. So the first premise is sex is a moral act. And Paul's conclusion is that based on the fact that sex is a moral act, there must be boundaries to its expression. I'm going to give you three ways of thinking about this truth. It's so very important. A river is incredibly powerful and incredibly important and life-giving. If you go to developing countries, you will find cities built where the river runs because river means life. But those same cities can be devastated when the river through flooding rises above its banks, spills out into the streets and the neighborhoods and wipes away what was there. A river is a powerful source of good within its boundaries but incredibly dangerous and damaging outside of them. Or think about a fire. Any of you from Central or Northern California or maybe even Southern California, you know that a fire within its proper context 
can do so much good. Provide warmth, light, cook food. And yet if you've ever been exposed to a forest fire, you know the the dangerous power of fire when it jumps outside of its context and runs wild. Or maybe for us city folk, let let me bring it home. You ever seen somebody driving on one of the, tur- uh, the turnpike or the interstate or, or one of the toll roads and they're just like doing this all over the road? I promise I wasn't drinking. I just was, no, I'm just kidding. It wasn't me. I don't drive that way. But you've seen people drive this way. A vehicle, which is important as a device to get us from point A to point B and is useful in that way, when it runs outside of its boundaries, can create mayhem, death, and destruction. In other words, something that can be a tremendous source for good in one context can become incredibly damaging if it goes outside of that context. Our generation has seen the rise of the Me Too movement, which did not start in churches of people all agreeing on where those boundaries are. It started because the natural intuition of the human heart is to know that there are boundaries to sexual expression. In other words, I I get to determine who and how and where, like that is a boundary that is set. And as believers, we say that boundary is actually set for us in the word of God. We do not disagree that there are boundaries. There's simply some disagreement on where they are set. You tracking with me so far? Okay, thank you. So let me ask this question. What do we see in in the scriptures, in the word of God, what do we see as the boundaries for sexual expression? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on the thick ice of the statement that is both on the First Orlando website as well as our own Horizon West Church website, and this is what it is. God's vision for the family is the uniting of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. Human sexuality is a gift created for expression within the boundaries of marriage. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because what's happening here is that the sexual activity taking place, a man with his father's wife, not only disregards God's boundaries for sex, it also diminishes what healthy attributes could exist within that relationship. Do you understand this? Like like as soon as this man is sexually engaged with who is now his stepmother, it reduces the parent-child relationship to a sexual act. That this is not created in a vacuum. God's not up there going, hey, I think I'm gonna put all these burdens on people and put boundaries. God knows the way toward human flourishing. And in so many different ways, when we disregard God's boundaries for sexual activity, we at the same time diminish what healthy relationships would exist were we to honor them. Now, let me also add this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do not preach a message of condemnation or of do better or try harder. The message of the gospel is very simply that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So so God wants our freedom. The scripture says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all have fallen short. Another way to say it is we all have missed the mark. The word for sin in the New Testament is hamartia. It means we simply missed the mark. What we can do and will do is acknowledge that. What we cannot do and will not do is move the target. And so Paul is going to reset the target and say to the church at Corinth, you need to do something here. Look again at verses 3 through 8 with me, 1 Corinthians 5. 
Paul continues, though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. So when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, or you could use the word yeast, leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old yeast that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's some, there's some stuff in there that we're going to get to, but, but let me first point you to Paul's premise. This is premise number two that he's going to make. Paul's premise here is that we are a people in pursuit. And by we, I mean we the church. We are fundamentally a people in pursuit. Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says we are a people who live our lives going someplace, going to God, and whose path for getting there is the way, Jesus Christ. We're a people in pursuit of God. We're a a people in pursuit of heaven. We're a people in pursuit of holiness. This has always been true of God's people. I could take you to Abraham, a man who was told by God to leave the place that he called home and go to the land that God would show him. I could take you to, to Moses, delivering the people of Israel from their captivity in Egypt and exiting the land to go into the promised land that God had for him. I could take you to the Israelites themselves, who every year had three annual pilgrimages where the people from all over Israel would essentially road trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals of God. When we look at the Old Testament, we see a people who are constantly moving, a people who are in pursuit of God. Deuteronomy, the Old Testament book, says it this way. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the entire earth. It's chapter 7, verse 6. Baked into the life of the people of God is the realization that we are not yet where we belong, but we are moving toward that place in what Benjamin William Hastings calls the wild pursuit of God. We are a people on the move. I want to I kind of illustrate this with a parable. And so just kind of follow along with me. You're going to need to use your imagination a little bit here, but we're going to make this point in a, in a modern way. So imagine that you are single and you're on a two-day road trip to Michigan. Okay, you all tracking with me? Any Michigan haters? We don't care. We're just going to go. You're exhausted from a long day of driving, and so you stop off a hotel in, uh, off I-24 in Nashville, shout out Tennessee. After checking into the hotel and dropping your bags at the room, you run back downstairs for a snack from the lobby vending machine. As you approach, you notice a large and very lively party of people gathered at the pool deck just outside of the lobby. You notice a few things. One, there's no shortage of alcohol being consumed. You notice that several of the people are wearing swimsuits and are are flirting with one another. And then your eyes lock in on one individual in particular that you notice and suddenly notice is noticing you. That individual makes their way toward you and they say something like this, hey, it's good to see you. Can I get you a drink? For a moment you're tempted. It's been a long day, you've been driving hard. It would be fun to relax, meet some new people and maybe see where this thing goes. 
But immediately another thought follows. You remember the reason that you set out on this two-day road trip to Michigan. The reason that you're at this particular hotel in the first place and you respond in this way. Thank you for the invitation, but I'm only here to get some sleep. I'm on my way somewhere else. You see, my grandfather turns 90 this weekend and I'm headed to Michigan to celebrate him at his 40-acre farm where some of my best childhood memories were made. Not only that, but my parents and my four older siblings along with their spouses and all of their children are also coming from all over the East Coast. Aunts, uncles, cousins, some of whom I haven't seen in more than a decade. Over the next three days, we're gonna eat the best food, sing the loudest songs, play our favorite games. We're gonna have conversations that spill over from the late night to the early morning. There will be laughter from the funniest memories and tears as we think of family members who are no longer with us. Everyone else has already arrived and I'm setting out first thing in the morning so that I can be there for dinner tomorrow night. So again, thank you for the invitation, but I'm on my way somewhere else. Let me ask the question, what, what does that little parable illustrate for us? And this is what I believe. Christians are not a people who are morally superior to others. They are a people with a better vision for a better destination. The, the way, I might say it this way, the key to the Christian life is not a teeth-gritting commitment to moral superiority, but a soul-gripping vision of a better destination. Listen, if you're anything like me, there are days where you're holding on for dear life. The battle that we wage against sin and unbelief is real and it is relentless. But over the long term, you will never win those battles. You will never make it to the destination for which you've set out. If all you're doing is looking at the sin you desire and going, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't. Christians have a better vision and a better destination. The writer of Hebrews said exactly that when he said all of these people referring to the heroes of our faith, all of them died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. And obviously people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they longed for the country from which they came, they could have gone back. Instead, they were looking for a better place, a heavenly home. And that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. I want you to know this morning that this is not fanciful or whimsical language. What the writer of Hebrews is pointing to is a reality more substantive and certain than anything this temporary world could afford to us. All of the pleasures, Hebrews 11 says that Moses said, man, that's not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in me at Christ's return. When I put it on a scale and all of that weight of temptation, all that weight of pleasure, all that weight of what the world would offer me, man, it pales in comparison to the life of knowing Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Does the way you spend your time, your energy, and your money indicate that you're on your way to someplace else? Or does it show that you're really living for the here and now? And so Paul draws this conclusion, because we are a people in pursuit, that is his premise, his conclusion is that standards in the church must be applied. Going back to the parable I shared with you a moment ago, I might say it this way. We don't have to twist people's arm to try to do what the Bible says. 
Uh, We don't have to preach a message of condemnation. The way I might say it is, uh, you don't have to go with me, but if you're in my party, we're going somewhere. (laughs) Right? And and I I might say that what would it look like to be a church that lived such a compelling witness before the world that the invitation flipped? They said, man, I want to go where you're going. I want to be part of that party. I want to go somewhere with my life as well. The Christian life, quite simply, is a life set apart, what the Bible calls holiness. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11, Peter was one of the closest followers of Jesus. You might remember stories of him walking on water or him preaching a message at Jerusalem where 3,000 people were saved. And he reminds the people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. My fear for the church in the West, especially in the church in America, my fear for my own soul and my own family, it is so easy to forget that we are sojourners and exiles. We go, I'm pretty comfortable here. I got a really nice house. I got a 401k. Like, this is all good. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when I turn my gaze from the upward call of God to the downward call and trajectory of a culture that wants to snuff out what Christ is doing in my life, that wants to overwhelm my children with visions of money and pleasure and, yes, sex and all the rest. And we stand as a simple, visible witness that there is a better way, that God, your way is better. All of this, all of this is the backdrop for what Paul is now going to instruct the church at Corinth to do. Let him who has done this be removed. This is not about punishment, this is about purity. Paul shares an illustration here that's very interesting. He says, don't you know when you're baking, if you put a little bit of yeast in the, in the I'm not a, I don't know what I'm talking about. What am I talking about? Stuff rises, right? <laughs> I did all the commentaries and forgot to ask my wife how to cook. So, um, but I'm right, I, this is correct, right? When you put yeast in something, it, it makes like dough rise. All right, we're good. Thank you, Rosa. Paul is here referring to something that happened at the Passover. So when the Israelites were making their exodus from Egypt, they had to move so quickly. There was such an urgency to it that God instructed them, don't even worry about letting the the bread rise. Just bake it flat and get on the run. Like move. Do you see the connection? There is an urgency to the call of God. There's an urgency to the pursuit of God's people. And so when Paul says in verse 8, let's celebrate the festival not with the old yeast, malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, he's recalling for their mind the time when God delivered them miraculously, saved them from their bondage, and saying the same urgency exists now in the New Testament era as the people of God in Christ. A little yeast can work its way all through the bread. Another way of saying that is that tolerance for sin is the same thing as intolerance for holiness. You can't have it both ways. 
a church that allows sin to run rampant and run amok in its congregation does not get the privilege or the opportunity to say, hey, we're pursuing holiness. The people that are pursuing holiness would have to leave. And so there are boundaries, if you will, to what happens within the context of church. And there are stewards of that pursuit of God's people that have to be in place. Now, let me address a couple of extremes because I, I hope that already some of you are going, man, I hope, I hope there's a balance here. And there is. This is, this is very important. There are two basic extremes that exist, certainly within the Christian life, and I believe more broadly in the culture. On the one side, you have people that are all about what the New Testament calls license. I'm allowed to do this. I can get away with this. In fact, people all the way 2,000 years ago and still today were saying things like, if the grace of God is what you say it is, then he's going to forgive me anyway. The New Testament would say, no, no, no. Don't, don't abuse God's grace. Don't, don't take that for granted. Don't take advantage of God's grace. That's the license side. This is what the man in 1 Corinthians 5 is doing. I can go have my father's wife and still show up and worship with my church and everything's fine. But on the other extreme, you have what are called legalists. These are the people that say, if a few standards are good, then a thousand are better. <laughs> right? Like, like if a little bit of, of church discipline is warranted, then, then let's, just, let's just get on to everybody. And Paul is going to set some very stringent and very clear boundaries so that the legalists don't run amok. See, this is what we do. We're, we're so prone. It's like one or the other. Jesus invites us to a third way. Grace and truth. Truth and grace. And so I believe there are four questions kind of embedded in the text. At least three of them are. All of them scriptural that we need to ask as church leaders and perhaps even as brothers and sisters in Christ before we confront somebody in sin and especially before we would take any kind of public action for important questions. We cannot skip this. Uh, let's go to actually 1 Corinthians 5 and finish the chapter and then I'll, I'll get into those four. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I did not at all mean those who are sexually immoral in the world or those who are greedy or swindlers or idolaters because then you would have to go out of the world. No, I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, one who calls himself a Christian. If they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reviler, drunk, drunkard, swindler, don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, uh, outsiders is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So God judges those outside, purge what is evil from among you. The first important question that we always have to ask if we're thinking we're going to address sin in somebody's life is, who is the person sinning or who is committing the sin? If it is not a person who bears the name of Christian, if it's not a person who considers themselves saved and following Jesus, it's not my issue. I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to wade into those waters, right? One of the problems with what I've seen over the last 10 years or so in the American church is we've gotten way more focused on the sin outside of the church than what's going on inside the church. And we go, man, if we could just get the right party or the right, you know, candidate or the right, and I'm going, listen, vote. <laughs> Pray that the kingdom of God would come. Abide by your conscience. As you have opportunity, be salt and light. 
but stop throwing stones at the world when we've got stuff inside the church we got to deal with. So who is committing the sin in the first place? He says, God will judge those outside. We have a thing in my home that I sit, we tell our kids, sometimes we say, that's a family rule. The neighbors are allowed to drink Gatorade every day. You get it on Friday nights. That's a family rule. But it's the nature of kids to go, well, if we can't do it, you know, and that's what we do. It's like the church is like, well, if we've got to abide, then no, no, no. The way of Christ is better, but it is also optional. I tell people, look, I'm a pastor. If I was your governor, I, I might say something different. If I was your president, I might, but I'm a pastor. If you want to know how to follow Jesus, this is the guidebook. This is the map. I'm not, I'm not going to bend that, but I'm also not going to use it as a weapon against those who go, I'm not following this. Fine. You go to Cleveland, I'll go to Miami. <laughs> Wasn't even a LeBron joke. Those were just the two cities that came out. <laughs> Let me say it this way very clearly. We should not care more about policies or parties than we care about people created in the image of God and for whom Christ died. It's so important that we, that we start there. Second question. So first, who is committing the sin. Second, what is the sin being committed? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you have heard somebody say, all sin is the same in God's eyes? You heard that, right? Can I, can I tell you today, that is not true. It, it, it is not true. Now, it is true to say that all sin means that we need a Savior, so we, we can't like stack it up and go, well, I only do this, so I think I'm good. I, I think I just need to work a little harder. No, no, no. The first sin is what sets us on a trajectory to hell. Like we, we, are, we are lost because of sin, and it doesn't matter what the sin is. And yet, as we think about the application of sin, you might remember a time where Jesus said in Matthew 18, anyone who leads a child astray, it would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus did not say that about a person who disobeys their parent one time. It's different, right? In fact, the Apostle John, and I'm not even ready to preach on this, but, but you take this for what it's worth. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, not all sin leads to death. There is sin that leads to death, but not all does. So in other words, we need to be careful when we're confronting sin because all of us have it. And I don't want to be going on a witch hunt in your life, and I don't want you going on a witch hunt in my life. We're all dealing with sin. The problem is in 1 Corinthians 5, the sin was so full grown that it was now bringing in other people. It was public knowledge to the church, and now there's potentially even a victim because when Paul says this man has his father's wife, I believe the implication is a non-consensual relationship. Otherwise, he would address the woman too. So sins of that nature have to be dealt with. And when it becomes public, guess what? It needs to be dealt with publicly. So that people know, hey, this is a church that takes seriously the call of God. This is a church that values the pursuit of holiness. Question number three, how will the sin be addressed? Um, we're just going to real quickly go to Matthew 18. I don't have time to read all of that, but I want to read a few verses. Jesus, in his brilliance, in his wisdom, gives us a, an outline, a step-for-step -step process when we determine this is a person who is a Christian or claims to be, and this is a sin that is having really uh, large impact within the church body. We need to then go and confront them, and here's how we do it. First, one-to-one. -one. 
So I go, uh, Steve, can I pick on you? My, my boy Steve, we're in a Bible study together. He's, he's perfect. But if Steve was sinning and I went to him, we would do that one-to-one. And Steve would be like, man, thank you for pointing that, that out. Let's pray together. Let's hold each other accountable. We'd be good. But Jesus said, if that doesn't happen, take a few more. So maybe a few more guys in the Bible study. Hey, come, come with me, guys. We all, we all love Steve. We value him. We need to just show him that, man, the path he's on isn't good. And in love, we're going to bring, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We'll Jesus says, man, if he doesn't listen to a few, he hasn't listened to one, then take it to the church. I believe what Jesus is saying is not have the person stand on a platform and be shamed. He's saying, take it to church leadership. Hey, pastor, elders, whoever it is, we've, we tried to get this guy back. He's, he's doing some stuff that's really harming his wife, his family. It's, it's starting to get out in the community. We've done everything we know to do. He's not listening. And then the church leadership comes. And Jesus says, if they won't, if you won't even listen to church leadership, he's not a part of the fellowship. In the 21st century, are we allowed to do that? Did you know that we actually have these policies? This is a a last, last resort. But let me tell you about a time that I saw at work. When I was a child, there was a deacon in our church who um, had become what I would call a serial adulterer. It had gotten to the point where there were just women all over our little small town that, that he was in relationships with. And he had three young children, and he was a deacon in our church. And in going through the process, this guy said, no, 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 I'm not giving this up. And in this case, the pastor of the church stood before the congregation, said, we want to make it very clear this person is no longer a deacon, and they are no longer a part of the fellowship of this church. Within five years, that man had left his wife, married another woman, and murdered her. Now, that's, that's extremely like out there, right? Like that's way extreme. But I'm just telling you, there does come a point where you go, when someone's heart is so hardened that they will not respond to correction, they will persist in a way that leads to death, even when everybody they know and love is encouraging them to to go toward life, that person's not a Christian. It doesn't matter how high their hands are raised in worship. It doesn't matter how low they go on their knees to pray. A person with a hard heart against God is not a redeemed person. And so Paul says, and this is wild, I'm actually not going to go to Matthew 18. You can go there later. Paul uses this phrase that's, that's mind-bending. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. <laughs> as best I can tell, what Paul is saying is that by removing this person from Christian fellowship, he's now no longer getting the encouragement of other believers. He's no longer getting all the feels when we worship together. He's now an outsider. He's now delivered over. Now the prayer of covering and the favor on the church is no longer his. Now he's out there on his own. Now the enemy can start to do a work. But listen, the destruction of the flesh isn't the worst thing that can happen. Paul isn't saying, man, tell that guy to go to hell. He's saying, let his flesh be destroyed. In fact, in other words, let him become so low and lose everything good in his life for a reason. And it leads us to the fourth question. Why is the sin being addressed? The end of verse five says this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, it is not condemnation. It is not uh, reckless judgment. It's man, maybe, just maybe, if this guy won't listen and he won't listen, he won't listen, if we put him outside of the church, maybe he starts missing it. 
Maybe there's starting to be a longing in his heart, man, I miss worshiping with other believers. I miss, I miss this, the, the, the experience of the Spirit of God when we gather. And maybe it brings him to a point where he's ready to repent and come back to his senses. The goal of confronting sin in the church is always redemptive, never vindictive. Let me say that again. The goal of confronting sin in the church is always redemptive. It is never vindictive. This is clear from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 as well as Matthew 7. It's also seen in the letters to the churches in Revelation. What God calls us to, he has also demonstrated for us in the reconciling through Christ Jesus on our behalf. Jesus looked at our sin square in the eyes. He didn't run from it, didn't hide from it, didn't squirm about it. He, he came face to face with our sin and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Romans chapter five, verses six through eight says, you see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a, uh, uh, sorry, very rarely will anyone die for someone else, though for a good person, someone might dare to do so. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we deal with issues of sin in the church, our example is always Jesus. The one who hit it head on, who died to free us from it and to forgive us, and who was raised to life on the third day. Can I quickly tell you the rest of the story of this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Many scholars, many people who have become students of the Bible believe that he comes up again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul writes another letter to the church, and he says, he doesn't get too specific, but he says, to the one who has been punished, it's enough. Forgive him and let him be restored. Wow, who could he be talking about? I believe he's talking about the man in 1 Corinthians 5. That what Paul called the church to do on his behalf did its work, and the man came in repentance and was restored not only to faith in Christ, but to the fellowship of the believers. Friends, as we are a people in pursuit of God, let us always point each other forward to what God has called us to in Christ. In just a moment, I want to pray. Before I do that, if there is something stirring in your heart, and you say, Pastor Chris, I'm in need of the forgiveness of God. I'm in need of him saving me from my sins. I'd love for you to let me know that. I'm going to be in the back under a blue new here tent. You come and find me. You come and talk to me. I can set up a coffee, a lunch. We can talk over the phone. I would love to show you how sin no longer has to be your master and you can live the abundant life of Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your grace in unpacking a difficult and kind of awkward subject. You know we got several more to go in the coming weeks, so Lord, let your grace just continue to permeate through all of that. God, the truth is, if I was left to my own wisdom and my own intelligence, I might come up with a different way to do all of this, but I'm leaning on your word because it's the only place I've found life. It's the only place I've found a truth that has set me free. 
So God, if there's anyone struggling today with, with monumental sin or, or unbelief or going, God, I just don't know how I can even do this anymore or do this for the first time. God, would you break any hardness of their heart? Would you draw them to the cross? Would you forgive their sins? Would you bring them to fellowship? Would you place within them the power of your Holy Spirit from heaven who would help them live the abundant life, the freedom that you came to give us? Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.